Welcome to Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. Let me start by telling you what we're hoping to do with this show. Every week, I'm going to talk with the people who are in the business of making podcasts at every level. We're also going to do a bit of news here and there. If I do my job right, you walk away with a better understanding of this medium, the community actually building the podcasts, and why it's a meaningful part of the media landscape. If nothing else, well, at least you get to walk away with a few interesting shows to add to your queue. Here's what you need to know about me. I've been covering podcasts since 2014, when I started HotPod, a widely read newsletter in the podcast community. I'm a regular contributor to New York Magazine's Vulture, where I write about the business and review podcasts. And now I'm here with this new show. All right, with all the introductions out of the way, let's get you up to speed. This is a remarkable time for just about everyone. On the one hand, you have the global pandemic. And on the other hand, you have the stunning wave of protests against police brutality and racism that's been sweeping across the nation. The podcast world is not insulated from any of that. Like just about everywhere else, it's been dealing with the logistical and economic challenges that come with a socially distant world. And like everyone else, the protests around the country have sparked conversations about how the podcast community can be better with issues of fairness and opportunity, especially when it comes to people of color. The podcast world has also been grappling with a fundamental challenge that predates the pandemic and the protests. Capitalism. A flood of new money and corporate interests that some worry might ultimately change the character of the community. Possibly for the worse. Which brings us to Spotify. No other entity embodies the flood of new money better than Spotify, the Swedish music streaming service, which has spent almost half a billion dollars over the past year on podcasting, in a bid to become something far bigger than just a music streaming service. That kind of money is head-spinning stuff for the podcast community, which had already been navigating the pains that come with rapid growth over the past decade. Consider, almost 100 million Americans actively listen to podcasts these days. That's double what it was five years ago and triple what it was 10 years ago. Podcasting has changed radically since it began in the early 2000s. Its big innovation was making it free and easy for anybody to distribute their own audio programs over the internet. And the early community was defined by a free-flowing openness. You'd find some comedians, some minor media figures, some public radio people, and lots and lots of average Joe tech bloggers. Now, there's significantly more glitz. Today, you'll find celebrities, journalists, authors, social media personalities, athletes, big media companies, you name it. This is a lot to process. So I thought I'd start with a longtime podcast executive to talk through how podcasting has changed over the years and what it means. These days, Adam Sachs is the chief operating officer at Conan O'Brien's media company, Team Coco. But for a number of years, he was the chief executive of Midroll Media, which is now Stitcher. I asked him for his thoughts on how podcasting has changed over the last 10 years. At the beginning, you're right. It did feel much more niche. It was dominated, I think, by, you know, um, kind of 
coastal liberal elite, both in terms of comedy content and public radio content and techie mm-hmm. content. <laughs> but it's become it's become much more mainstream, I think, in a lot of ways. I think the faces behind the microphones have changed. The listener composition has changed. You know, I think we're pretty close to like a... 50-50 male-female ratio. I think many more people, in terms of listeners, I think mm. many more people of color have podcasts, listen to podcasts, you know, than ever before. And absolutely, with all of this change and with all of this uh, mainstreamization, there's more money in the space. And more money is attracting more media companies, bigger celebrities, which uh, I think ha- does have a snowballing effect in bringing even more audiences in. And mm. then in addition to that, just media consumption and media habits more broadly have shifted in a direction of a little bit more passive, a little bit more short form, Hmm. you know, content that can be consumed in minutes or even seconds. Podcasts, you know, to use the buzzword, have that intimate element to them. I gotta say, like, I've I've grown to really hate that word, but I get it. I totally get it. (laughs) I don't know. Can you tell me another word? Because I I mean, it's true. I think that the sentiment is true, that they are intimate, right? Like, you have this, you again, to use the cliche, you're developing this one-on-one relationship with the podcaster. I I believe that to be true. I've said it so many times over the years that I feel icky when I say it too, because it feels Mm -hmm. so cliched. But the truth is that, you know, podcasts do thrive on that deeper engagement, and they are able to capture attention like few other mediums can today. And so I think that has really helped them grow. I think one of the sort of things that has, that in my mind has come to define this medium, this ecosystem, is this sort of classical notion that like anybody can do it. It's become kind of a parody, you know, a joke that's often said to me is like, yo, my cousin has a podcast, like, or like my aunt is making a podcast. And there's something about that that is still, to me, quite revolutionary. And it it is still, to me, quite important, even though there is some concern that as the space becomes more industrialized, that there might be an effect to that anybody can make it in this. Do you see that's a trade-off here? Or do you think it's something that will be maintained even as more money comes into the space? I think the idea that anyone can make a podcast will will continue, right? I mean, like the the barrier to entry to creating a pro- podcast is so low and I don't see the barrier to actual podcast creation increasing. What I do think will increase is the idea that anyone can have their podcast be discovered or yeah. heard. You know, when there were 100,000 podcasts, it was already a little bit difficult to break through and to have your voice be heard. Now that there are, whatever the number is, 1.1 million or more, it's very difficult, If especially if you don't have some sort of machine behind you, a marketing machine, a media company with, mm. you know, with spend and resources. It will become increasingly hard to have your podcast if you are a DIY podcaster without an existing fan base already. Mm-hmm. It is going to become harder and harder, I believe, to have your podcast be discovered. I'm trying to wrap my head around the notion of as podcasting becomes mainstream, whether it makes the community or ecosystem less democratic or accessible somehow. And I wonder if that's always going to be the case with with any medium. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, if we want to use Conan as an example... I think Which that I should say, there's nothing wrong with, with Conan. I, I'm a big fan of the show. It's a, you know, <laughs> Team Coco makes 
you know, I, I quite like what you guys make, but it is, oh, it is a dynamic it. that impacts everybody else, I think. It does. I, but I, I mean, I will say to come to Conan's defense, um, <laughs> because that he's my employer, uh, but also because I truly believe it. I think that podcasting is still in a lot of ways a meritocracy. I know what I'm describing uh, and what I just said might be counter to that in that, you know, y- yes, Conan has a big social reach and Team Coco has a big social reach and Conan has a linear TV platform, which definitely sets him apart from the vast majority of podcasters. But I also think, and this is sort of mixed in with this whole story, is that he's been on TV for 27 years. Hmm. He's It's not an accident that he's a good podcaster. You know, he is like incredibly talented to begin with. I think he has a ton of innate talent, but he also has an enormous amount of experience. So I don't know if, if you want to debate whether it's a meritocracy or not. I mean, I think that his talent and his experience are a big reason that his show is, for my money, very good, and I think why it's successful. Mm-hmm. So I personally don't know where I land on this. Like, to one extent, I go, more money is better because more people can get paid. But in some ways, you know, there there is a there is a cost when yeah. when there's more well, here's noise. Well, here, yeah. here's what I would say. I think... I think that shows like Conan's show, and there are other shows that would probably fall into this category, are bringing new people into the medium that never Mm. listened before. And as we, as you and I both know, if you're a podcast listener, chances are you're a power user, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you listen to one podcast, chances are you listen to several. That's just the way that this medium works. And so I would say that people like Conan are bringing more listeners in who might listen to Conan's and say, hey, what else should I listen to? And Mm. this pie, yes, maybe he is taking a large piece of the pie, but I also think he's growing the overall pie in a big way. Hmm. When you look around at podcasting in 2020, um, did you you ever thought it would end up in this place back when you were running Mitroll? I think if you were to ask me, and I don't want to give myself too much credit because uh, there are a lot of <laughs> predictions I'm sure that are wrong. I, I bet I I bet I would have said that podcasting would have looked like it looks today, maybe five years from now. So in other words, I think that I maybe somewhere felt like this this place that we're at now was an inevitability, but maybe didn't quite catch on to how quickly it would happen. And I still think we have a ways to go. You know, I, I it, yeah. to your point, like we're not, it's not fully mainstream. You know, there is significant money in the space, but not an enormous amount of money relative to other, you know, media. I think we'll get there. It's just a matter of when. In Team Coca, I imagine that you're, you're pretty diversified out there, but have you seen sort of any um, like major impacts in advertising or revenue with the economic consequences of the pandemic? So a- as a business as a whole, we have, I mean, we've paused a couple of our business lines, right? Like live events. Uh, obviously, you know, that's an important business line for us. It's just on hold. So there are elements of our business that are just paused right now, mm. which is unfortunate, but it's okay. I think we saw about a 10% dip in downloads, which was maybe less dramatic than the industry at large. It's returned a bit, but it's not fully back to where we were before the pandemic. On the money side, our ad sellers were able to keep the majority of advertisers in. So while we weren't necessarily like in major growth mode, mm. we were able to maintain the status quo for the most part, we're still feeling the effects of the pandemic. And I don't think we know yet what the long-term impact is going to be. I mean, you know, I, I think there are going to be some like real shifts in routine that that end up being permanent, right? Like I think we're going to see more remote workers, which means fewer commuting hours, which means, you know, more time around kids and family and probably less opportunity to listen to podcasts. One thing I think that is interesting, one, one thing that we may see out of this 
pandemic is we may see the bar for quality be raised even higher. Huh. You know, when people are commuting, podcasts have less to compete against to win the consumer's attention. You know, if I'm in the car, I've got like two choices, right? Radio, podcasts, music, podcasts. If I'm at the gym, same thing, two choices. But if I'm sitting on my couch in my living room and I'm deciding between listening to the daily or putting on CNN, like the quality of the podcast really has to be great to compete against Netflix and, you know, Disney Plus and HBO Max in order to take my time. And that could be a good thing in the long run. Uh, let's talk about Spotify because I feel like we're dancing around the 5,000 pound Swedish gorilla in the room. Uh, in particular, over the past one and a half years, Spotify has spent like at least half a billion dollars in part on acquiring podcast company. You might have heard some of them. There's Gimlet Media, there's The Ringer, which is Bill Simmons' website and podcast network. And then there are two other companies, Parcast and Anchor, so far. Uh, and they've also signed like a lot of exclusive licensing deals. They have a deal with the Joe Rogan experience that's reportedly valued at about $100 million dollars. Uh, and they also have a slate coming up with Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company. It feels like they want to own podcasting in some form or another. And it does feel like the fact that they're spending this much money in the space has fundamentally changed the rhythm and the identity of the space. I'm curious as to what you think that has done to the way people think about podcasting, but also how podcasters think about podcasting. It's a great question. I don't. I, I wish I knew the answer to you know what it means today. I think in the long run... If we start to see, you know, what I would call like platform wars, if Spotify's aggressive moves finally get Apple to, you know, and I know that there are reports that that this is happening, but I don't know that it's been substantiated yet. But like, if suddenly it means Apple is going to get aggressive and start to spend money and 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 be ambitious in the podcast space, more ambitious or differently ambitious than they've been in the past, or if Stitcher starts to spend more money or Audible, and suddenly we have, you know, a handful of platforms spending lots of money competing for talent, I think creators will win for the most part, at least monetarily. And I think that there are arguments to be made that listeners will win because this increase of money and attention will bring better content, bigger talent into the space. I think that's going to happen. Now, obviously, there are potential downsides too. I mean, if, if Spotify becomes a monopoly mm. and it's not an oligopoly where there's a, where several big companies, but there's really just one and it's just Spotify, then, you know, you could see a world in which they are sort of like throttling ads to certain podcasts that have better deals with them or even placement on the app where they are promoting shows over other shows. And that could, that could sort of hurt what is today a very open and to use the word we used before, like democratic medium. Apple to date has been seen as fairly agnostic or neutral, although of course they do highlight shows and their charts can become very self-fulfilling as well. But if Spotify does become a monopoly in the space and they can exert the influence that like, you know, YouTube exerts over video, there's a world in which Spotify's own preferences about content and monetization can actually impact the creative of podcasts in general, right? Like if, if Spotify starts to say, you know what, for Spotify, it just makes more sense if podcasts are 20 minutes long or shorter. And we are going to make sure that those short episodes, you know, bubble up to the top and anything longer kind of gets neglected. Well, then that might mean that there's a rush for podcasters to start making shorter content, you know, for better or worse. It just may, it may impact the creative of the medium. 
what do you think podcasting looks like five years from now? I mean, I do see a world in which we have several big platforms spending lots of money, paying creators a lot of money. So maybe you have the equivalent of Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Amazon, the big platform players spending a lot of money on big creators and big talent. But then maybe you also have the open market as well, the YouTube for mm -hmm. the long tail of podcasts. And, and the fact that we now have technologies helping podcasters monetize themselves, like programmatic ads, dynamic ad insertion, even Patreon as a platform, you know, does, I think, mean that if you don't fall into one of these big buckets, eventually, if you don't fall in, if you're not a ex exclusive show to Spotify or a show that's exclusive to Stitcher Premium or whatever, I still think that there are going to be ways to monetize, but we may just see a little bit of a bifurcation of the market. So you're pro-capitalism is what you're saying. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm not. This is not pro or minus. <laughs> this is just a prediction. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Right, what do you, right. I mean, what do you think? My biggest concern is that if you don't have a pre-existing relationship with, you know, a platform, if you don't have a platform yourself, if you're an up-and-coming, you know, nobody from a demographic that's historically underlooked by traditional media companies, do you still have a shot? And to what proportion do you have a shot relative to other demographics? I think that's the thing that I'm a little bit worried about. If... Well, let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Let's say these platforms didn't exist or, mm -hmm. or that they weren't spending lots of money. Let's say Spotify never entered the podcast space and we're really still dealing with Apple owning, you know, 80% of the market share. Do those podcasters, uh, do they stand a worse chance in that scenario? I don't know. Hmm. Last question specifically for Team Coco. Um, what do you guys want to do with podcasting? What, what, what's your sort of ambition in this space? What Team Coco has, it has a pretty defined sensibility. It's mm. like we like to, in shorthand, say it's like the intersection of smart and silly really coming directly from Conan sensibility. And self-deprecation, probably. Self-deprecation, no question about it. And also, for the most part, evergreen. You know, a lot of the content that Conan makes is is evergreen. That's a, that's a part of our brand, something that doesn't feel like disposable, but feels as, you know, valuable years from now as it is today. But in terms of what, our, what we want to build, we want to build a podcast a network that's diverse, more diverse than it looks today. But certainly the connective tissue is that there's the same comedy sensibility. Hmm. And we want to continue to grow. We, we want to be both ambitious and try to capture really big talent within our net. But also part of Conan's brand for years has been to uh, curate, identify, and hopefully elevate newer voices. You know, mm -hmm. he is still to this day the person who has more stand-ups on his show than any other late night show. Mm -hmm. And what we didn't really talk about, but is, is also something that is on our radar and an important piece of our strategy is scripted podcasts. Hmm. We've made a couple of those already. We have uh, more in production as we speak. We think that they are a great way for us to obviously to use more buzzwords like incubate IP, you know, for other things. But also it allows us to work with talent that we want to work with, writers that we want to work with. And they're really fun to make. And so just uh, the word IP kind of makes you feel sticky. I, I know. I'm sorry. You should have, uh, before we started this conversation, you should have sent me a bunch of words, a list of words that I should avoid. So no, no, I don't want to uh, deny your, uh, your personality or humanity. <laughs> Adam Sachs is the chief operating officer of Conan O'Brien's Team Coco. Okay, so it's important for me to emphasize that podcasting isn't just the Conan O'Briens of the world. 
Which is why, for this first episode, I wanted to balance things out by talking to someone who's deliberately keeping things small for the sake of staying independent. I've always said, truly in every stage of my career, when I was an agent, when I was a producer, and now doing this, I wish I cared about money more. I, I don't. I care about making this stuff. More after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. So earlier in the show, Adam Sachs talked about a splitting of the podcast world. The glitzy, moneyed stuff on one side and the scrappy, independent stuff on the other. Independent podcasts, I would argue, are the spiritual heart of the podcast world. So I reached out to Priyanka Matu, the co-founder of a deliberately independent podcast network called Erios. I think we're very clear because we're ideas first. We're all writers and creators. We really know that we sat down and said, what are the three things that we really want to make? Or what are the three to five things that we really want to make? It's not really about scale. It's not about, I mean, I wish we were business first. We're just not. We're content first. And we, we like the thrill that we get is like seeing an idea from conception to execution and getting it out there and sharing it with people. That's just how we're wired. It was never, let's sit down. There's, an, there's a business opportunity here. Let's raise as much money as we can. That just isn't how we're built. Before Erios. Priyanka worked as an agent at Hollywood powerhouses WME and UTA. She still made her living from writing and producing, but wanted to start this new company with no strings attached. So instead of big investors or strategic investments, Erios launched a Kickstarter campaign and raised $25,000. This is a far cry from the money that Joe Rogan is getting to go over to Spotify. I asked her what she thinks of this chasm. For me, that's just another planet. I don't see myself we're we're like we have created a company so that we can just put out our own weird stuff Hmm. we don't think it's fringe in any way but we do realize it's quite specific tonally (laughs) 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 and the fact that we get to make it is the joy um if spotify doesn't feel like coming knocking for a slate of like 12 to whatever 15 women-led shows i don't expect giant companies to seek out diverse women's voices <laughs> like that's not <laughs> i'm not a crazy person um <laughs> you know well, like, tell, tell, tell me more about that i you yeah, know they're gonna scoop up the you know the sporty yeah. people and the dudes and the, that's fine i've seen it all like i've seen it all through studio if i've been you know in entertainment for 15 years and i have i yeah. have my expectations are my expectations yeah I, I but like so it's funny it's funny that the framework is that like of course they're not going to really invest in diversity. No, never, <laughs> never. 
If they do, that's great. I mean, I'm sure right mm-hmm. now they're like, what can we do to create a task force to yeah. hire, yeah, to I mean, hire this, more this diverse sort of, uh... people? And it's like, just you don't need a task force to do just like look at their resumes and be like, hmm, this person seems interesting. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think it's that hard. I've always personally believed like efforts at diversification are intimately tied to capital and ownership. And I'm wondering for podcasters of color who start podcast companies, what would be the right thing to do in order to increase your odds at building sustainable businesses? Yeah. Do they have to rely on a big company or corporation for startup support? What I'm recommending right now is um, you, 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 you like don't fall into a few people have called me who are like launching their own companies, women of color, especially. And they've asked mm. for advice. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like half a step ahead of you. But here's what I can tell you. Um, you're not positioning yourself to be noticed by Spotify. Like that's a losing game. You will, you just, you know, that's like, if they're interested, they're interested, great. Um, but that can't be your goal. Your goal is sitting down, making a list of the things you're dying to make, um, and then making them. And as far as an economic um, plan, I mean, listen, we're not, you know, we're not paying ourselves. We're breaking even, basically. We have a little bit to pay mm. for the company. So we're not at a point where we're making tons of money yet. But the idea is that we are now producing and taking out bigger shows because now there are buyers who are willing to pay money for bigger shows and take advantage of that. You know, use them for the bigger ideas you have that you cannot self-fund. There is a... I'm not going to say a dirt that there is, there is a, definitely, um, you know, if you have production experience, either creative or technical people are looking for those skills right now. You know, like a lot of these big companies have ideas, but have no idea how to make them and like insert yourself into that dynamic call. I mean, this is what we do as producers in Hollywood is when you start up, when you put up your shingle and you're like, okay, we have a production company now, you know, you, you call everyone, you know, at every studio or every buyer, Spotify, whatever. And you go, Hey, what are you guys doing? You know, here's some things we're doing. Like maybe we can collaborate. And the more they think about you, the more they think of you for projects and the more of the bigger, Mm -hmm. funner ideas you have, those are the people you reach out to, to sell your big shows. So it's kind of the same, the same model. It is a bit piecemeal, but it's going to be piecemeal until it's not bad robot. Wasn't built in a day, you know? (laughs) Okay. So what does success mean for you specifically at Erios? I think that even if we were to fold tomorrow, I would be happy with what we've built. However, what I would like for us is to be able to put out, you know, three to five in the next couple years, big shows with big audiences that we can get guaranteed marketing spends for um, that make a real impact. And because it's all women and we tend to gravitate toward diverse voices, um, have it make a cultural impact. It's really about that it's Hmm. i've always said truly in every stage of my career when i was an agent when i was a producer and now doing this i wish i cared about money more i I Hmm. don't i care about making this stuff nobody cares how much money i make but you know i get more attention when i actually connect with an audience whether it's writing or directing or producing podcasts so something i want to try to do when we wrap stuff up is to ask um what are you listening to right now a lot of story pirates (laughs) Oh, well, so, you know, kids got to do something. So much story pirates, I can't even tell you. Priyanka Matu, co-founder of the Erios Podcast Network. Back in a minute.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. So, let me level with you. I'm incredibly nervous about starting this podcast. There's a certain friction that happens when somebody who writes about creative work actually starts making that kind of work. It's awkward, to be frank. Together with my producers, I've spent the past few months planning episodes, writing scripts, stammering through interviews, and I've never been more intimately familiar with the fact that making this stuff is really hard. So I thought I'd reach out to someone who excels at this to ask for advice about how to do it, especially considering that we've all been holed up at home for months. I mean, for me, it's less, I just have less time to do work because uh, I don't mm. have the childcare that I usually have. So it has, it, it has to be super focused and then I run out of time. <laughs> and I can't, I have to, you know, well, can't get back to this till tomorrow. Anna Sale is the creator and host of WNYC's Deaf, Sex, and Money. I just feel really proud of the Deaf, Sex, and Money team and what we've been able to make together while we're all remote from each other and in really, you know, a challenging emotional environment. I feel like uh, the team's really showed up for our listeners. So I feel really proud of yeah. that. Do you feel like the the sort of substance of the show has become more pronounced right now because i'm just thinking of the tagline right the things that we're all thinking about but we need to talk about more i feel like uh, almost everything kind of fits into the bucket right now (laughs) yeah i feel like it and also the other thing i think about is like and even the hard things that we could help each other through without talking about it we have to Mm -hmm. now talk about it like we can't show up for people and show care in the way that we are used to so we have to just use words in a way that's frustrating if I'm not mistaken, uh, your first episode of Death, Sex, and Money was with the late Bill Withers, the legendary singer. Uh, and I'm wondering as to why that was the first episode. Was the decision like, um, this is going to be the thing that represents us right out the gate? Here's a conversation. We're not going to do a bunch of setup. We're just going to go straight into it. Well, I think of the launch of Death, Sex, and Money, it was it was actually three episodes that we put out in one week. Hmm. And they've they really sort of neatly have defined the kinds of stories that we do. It was Bill Withers, an interview with someone who is beloved and a celebrity and a famous person. The other episodes that week were I interviewed a woman named Heidi Reinberg, who was a longtime freelancer, video producer in Brooklyn, who was priced out of her apartment. And she was Mm. middle-aged in a sort of, it was very much about money and that like this crisis had happened that made her question 
all of the choices that she had made up to that point, like living in New York, whether it was a place she could still thrive, also the just awkwardness of being in a neighborhood where she had a lot of friends and she'd been for a long time and like it was money that was meaning it was why she had to leave and it was embarrassing and how to deal with that. Hmm. So that was somebody who was not famous, encountering a really tough, specific, concrete thing, money, um, not having enough. And then the other episode that week was about me. It was about my relationship tumult (laughs) in the previous year with my now (laughs) husband, Arthur, where we were long distance and broken up and figuring out if we could be back together. And it was about that. And And it featured a senator, right? Yeah, Uh, it was about that and also about... uh, (laughs) former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson and his wife, Ann Simpson, and their relationship and the hard things they'd gotten through. And they gave us, they sort of showed up in our lives in a surprising way that was really wonderful. And so I interviewed them and interviewed Arthur, my now husband. So that was sort of um, this combination of of celebrity interview plus not celebrity interview. Um, (laughs) So with that mix... The decision to put the Bill Withers in the feed first was, first, it was just a conversation where there are still, you know, that was many years ago. And there's just, I can remember like sitting there with my headphones on and just being knocked over by the way he could put to words, simple words, like these really Mm. potent truths about life that were both specific to his life and also broadly applicable. And it just felt like radio gold. Um, And I liked that it wasn't literal. Like it showed, yes, this show is called Death, Sex, and Money, but this is not Bill Withers talking about death for 10 minutes, sex for 10 minutes, and money for 10 minutes. It's like showed that we, death, sex, and money as a concept is sort of a prompt, um, Hmm. but not super literal. So all of those things informed that choice. So what do you see as like um, what the responsibility of the host is? Hmm. Like at what point does does Anna need to jump in here and say like, here's the motivation for this episode. And when do we just let a guest and their what's fascinating about them kind of speak for themselves? And, you know, it's just kind of feeling your way through. But as an interviewer, my particular style has been to try to explain to the person I'm talking to to say, like, this is why I'm asking you this, and then ask an open question in as few words as possible to make sure there's space for them to fill. Hmm. Uh, who were you sort of like uh, role model interviewers? Like, who were you looking to as, as like, a, like, I want to be, I want to incorporate elements of that person into my style? Hmm. I mean, my forever hero, the person who, like, I listened to and decided I wanted to learn how to make radio was Terry Gross. She's gifted at so many things, but what she is just the best at is making it clear without dominating. She asks these questions where you just can hear how much thought and study and processing has gone into a pretty short question that's going to get an answer that otherwise would not have existed in the world because she is, she's thought enough about whether it's someone's work or reporting or life, like how to like move the angle just so, so you're asking a question in a different way than anybody else has. And it's just revelatory. Like you just 
hear things. People say things on that show that they don't say other places. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I also think Max Slinsky at Longform is really hmm. a good interviewer. And I think that, I mean, his particular style is like, is sort of a sneak attack because he's so self-deprecating. And then you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's really gonna just ask this really hard question. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been interviewed on a show, and it, it, it strikes me how um, he's actually kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if it's mean because I feel I find him so like I feel advocated for as a listener. You know, like mm. I think he's not gonna not ask the question. So probably for the guest, it can be uncomfortable. But I don't mm. I don't think of him as a cold person. <laughs> I think of him as quite warm. I so I'm curious when you're done uh with an with an interview like what how do you usually feel? Like how how is it supposed to feel? How's it supposed to feel? <laughs> uh how do I usually feel and how it's supposed to feel are different. <laughs> um <laughs> how it's supposed to feel is you should feel like wow. I really connected with that person. I really heard them answering my questions. They told me things that I've never thought of in quite that way. Um, I feel so excited to share this with our listeners. Um, I can immediately see how this is going to cut and what the episode is going to you know, sound like. And that's how it's supposed to feel. And sometimes that's how it feels. Most mm. often, it feels like... Uh, I think there's some really nice moments, but like, uh, I'm not quite sure how this is going to cut. And like, I, I, I think we'll be able to make it work. And also, I really hope that person has someone to like, talk to now that they've hung up with us, because we talked about some really tough things. And I'm thinking about them and worried about them. That's how it most often feels. And for you personally, that that's how you often feel coming out of one of these things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I but also like uh, you know I'll I'll slack members of the team be like oh but that did you hear that one thing that was like a really great moment so it's yeah. also it's not only like oh my gosh I don't know if we got anything good usually you can usually there's one or two moments that you're like yes when does it feel justified to have a platform like this when like how do you how do you sort of build that case for yourself that this is something that you should be doing and that that should be taking people's time? I think that's that's the one thing I've been sort of trying to wrap my head around. Mm. That's interesting. What is my case for my platform? That's confidence, I feel. Mm. And I think that that's about the relationship that each of us has between confidence and humility and, you know, and, and I think that that, for me, it's like a teeter-totter thing. Like, mm. I don't know enough about this, so I'm going to, I want this person to be on the show because I'm very curious and I'm aware that, like, these are things that I don't know how to talk about or know how to do well or where I feel adrift in my own life. And so that's motivating the conversation. But then I also, I have to say, like, every episode that we have put out over six years of this show, I really feel like it was worth people's time to listen to. And that's a really good feeling. I, I feel really proud of what we've made. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are other things that are really important and death, sex, and money should not be the only part of your media diet. <laughs> you should you should <laughs> consume other things, but uh, you should consume us along with other things because I think what we're doing is important and meaningful to people. 
the like way I struggled with that was coming from traditional political reporting where, mm. you know, you don't have to question like, is it important who's winning this campaign? That's that's going to be a headline story. What the polls are saying about which candidate is up or down, like that's a headline story. Transitioning out of that to a more sort of personal feelings-focused show about the private spheres of our lives. And I struggled with making sure that was enough in the way that, like, am I, like, in a really sort of, like, anti-feminist way in my head, I was like, is this important enough? Or am I just doing a feeling show that's not important journalism? And I have come to think, I, I feel quite confident that it's important journalism. And I think it's it's meaningful in people's lives to both listen to the show and then for the people who are on our show, I think it's meaningful for them to get to share about the things that we talk about on our show. So for you, your show is about this like medium that's emergent, right? This is what your show is yeah. about. This emergent medium that is like has the capacity to create like real intimacy with people who will never be physically proximate. It also has the capacity to, you know, like YouTube, uh, have a lot of bad <laughs> result from it <laughs> as, you know, right. like to like dedicate space to say like, this is how this new way of us being able to communicate with each other is developing. And this is how capitalism is shaping it. And this is how, you know, the kinds of stories that are being produced as the models for how you pay for it change. Like, I feel like that's really important. And I'm excited to listen to it. And I feel like I, nobody else is doing I mean, that. Like, nobody. it's like yeah. a space that's not claimed. Like, if you I think that's an important thing for you to think to yourself. Like, if I weren't doing this, it wouldn't exist. So I need to do it. And I really, I'm just, I just appreciate, like, talking to you. Um, I feel like I've been following your podcast and your career for a very long time. And, you know, I think in many ways, like, the hope of the show would at some point end up feeling, at least in spirit, much like yours. Uh, oh. Even though it has to do with um, money and capitalism, and which I guess it's what your show's about. Yeah. But also um, creative work. I, it's something that I'm listening to a lot now, re-listening to a lot now, just sort of thinking through how I want to handle the show. Oh, that's and cool. I just want to say I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I want to, uh, can I give you one more hot tip? <laughs> I, you can give all the hot tips that you want. I'm taking everything that I can. I feel like something that I didn't know when I started Death, Sex, and Money, and I thought it was sort of like, I just didn't appreciate its importance, is how incredible it can be when you make a podcast where your listeners feel like you're listening back to them. You're, you're listening to what they want to say. And like, we use the word engagement to talk about that and audience engagement, which feels so cold to me. Hmm. But when I think about the persona or, you know, what my role is as a host and how that's changed over the years, like, I feel like I have been so guided by our listeners and the stories they want to share with us and what they send to our inbox, you know, unprompted that they want to hear about or how they respond to our very open questions. And and so I feel like as soon as you start this show, like making just making that invitation to your listeners about this is what I think this show is. Like, what do you want to hear? Like, what are you curious about? And really very quickly integrating listener voices and, and listener feedback into 
a show because then it's not just about you. It's this living, breathing community. And it's that's what I feel the most proud of with Death, Sex, and Money. I think we've made beautiful audio and I think we've made, you know, had wonderful moments of interviews. But to think about that, we have become a place where our listeners kind of know they can turn to and they do turn to is really, really powerful. Um, Anna, thank you so much for, for doing this with me. I, I'm, I don't think I know anybody else I'd rather talk about this more with than oh, you right now. <laughs> that's such a compliment. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks again to Adam Sachs, Priyanka Matu, and Anna Sale. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.